Hey y'all, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy, the Rhino Lab. It's Ryan Williams here. Each episode of this podcast, I speak with a business leader, author, or entrepreneur about how we can learn to change the world through actions and lessons based on their storytelling. This podcast is all about the power of the story, and I also want to help you tell your story. If you'd like to work with me to help your marketing strategy, digital collaboration, and brand storytelling, you find more information at InfluencerEconomy.com. I collaborate with workshops, seminars, and public speaking talks as well. This episode with Eric Barker is one to remember. Stick around to the end. This episode with Eric is really one to remember. We talk a lot about uh, how to find your strengths and weakness in business and life, how to tell your better story, and also uh, a lot about meaning and money and purpose and how to find that big vision that you're working on. Without further ado, here is Eric Barker. Hey everyone, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy. It's Ryan Williams here, so fired up for uh, this week's guest, Eric Barker. Welcome. How Great you doing? Great to be here, man. Great I'm really, to be here. really psyched, and uh, you're the author of Barking Up the Wrong Tree, which is a Wall Street Journal bestseller. It's a book uh, which is subtitled The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Success is Mostly Wrong. You are also uh, have a blog called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, and what I love about your work is you deconstruct science. I, I believe you call yourself a, a myth buster because you get into the science and looking for the answers about what makes success and what makes us happy. And is that how, like, when you walk into a bar, a restaurant, or coffee shop, how do you describe what you do to people if they ask what you're working on? Basically, with the the blog, you know, I'm I'm trying to find the most legit uh, resources imaginable, talking to you know academics, looking at research, or or kind of undisputed experts in their field, and just you know trying to get people legit answers on on how to be better at life, you know, because there's a lot, there's plenty of advice, tips, and thoughts out there on the internet, you know, but just trying to get something which is either you know backed by legitimate research or or comes from somebody who is is kind of beyond reproach. That's what's critical for me. With the book, I specifically was focusing on success, and kind of the angle I took was looking at those maxims of success that we all grew up with, like nice guys finish last, it's not what you know, it's who you know, and actually trying to do mythbusters on them, because we've all heard them, they're pithy, they're easy to spread, but you know, are they actually legit? Do they hold up to, to scrutiny? Maybe they were true in the past, but they're not true now. You know what? How accurate are they, and should we be using these as guides for the success? And with each chapter, I, I kind of break down, you know, one of those maxims. Uh, look at the research and see how true it is or not, and what what we really need to be to be looking at to 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 be as successful as we can. And you, so just to, to take a bigger step back here, um, how long were you bro- blogging, and then um, when did the book come out? Like after you started blogging. Uh, I started the blog in 2009, and uh, the book came out uh, this year. So, you know, basically, uh, I've been blogging, doing the blog for for eight years, and uh, the book I've been working on since 2015. So, so probably it was about six six years I've been working on the blog before I started with the with the book, and uh, and there. You know, it was it was really interesting to to go from uh, you know focusing on online content, blog posts, and then to uh, to actually start writing a book. A book is a is a very different beast from a blog post. You know, blog post you know rel- relatively short, certain level of depth, and then to have to you know produce something that's you know two hundred and fifty plus pages. You know, all of a sudden it's it's the difference between a sprint and a marathon. 
So then what, what do you call yourself then? Or like professionally, what do you do outside of writing and on the blog and writing the book and, t- and talking and speaking? Uh, no, that is what I do. That's what you do? Yeah. Okay. So you're a hyphenate. You do a lot of <laughs> You're like KZ, where you're a producer, you're a mogul, you're a... <laughs> I, I don't think I'd compare myself to, to Jay-Z. I, I, uh, he's, <laughs> you're not married to Beyonce, though. You know that much. Not anymore. But <laughs> the... Uh, but, you know, I'm, so yeah, I guess, uh, author blogger. <laughs> okay. That's cool. So you're, uh, so I actually used one of your, um, your theories in the opening here because you say, you talk a lot about how people, uh, need to self talk. And, uh, I love that idea where you have a Navy talk about research you did with the Navy SEALs, but can you kind of go into the, the self talking, especially with the Navy SEAL example? Yeah. Uh, years ago after nine 11, uh, the government realized they were going to need more special operations troops. So they, they wanted to, to have more Navy SEALs. Uh, but the issue was basically you can't lower standards. You know, there's a vetting, there's a strong vetting process, you know, obviously for, for any special operations troop. And so they wanted more of them, but they didn't want to lower standards. So they needed to think about how could they help people pass without lowering the threshold for, for what qualified you to become a SEAL? And the government actually didn't know. So the Navy conducted a study, and they found a number because of you things. Want, you don't want to open the door and just let subpar candidates in. Well, then you're, yeah, yeah. It's like then, then you're, you're, defeating, you're defeating the purpose. And um, so one of the things they realized that helped uh, people, a psychological tool that helped people get through this, the strong vetting process of BUDS was positive self-talk. And basically, you know, what that came down to is, is we all say about 300 to 1,000 words to ourselves uh, per minute. And what you, when you look at the research by Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, what's really critical when it comes to the issue of grit and resilience, uh, you know, the ability to withstand challenges and keep moving forward, is optimism. And speaking to yourself optimistically, you know, has been shown, uh, especially specifically, you know, with Navy SEALs to, to help them, uh, withstand these like grueling challenges that are, they're meant to get people to quit. And with optimism, uh, cause a lot of people, you know, we always hear it's, Oh, be optimistic, be positive. And you know, that's, that's not necessarily helpful, especially if you already have a negative perspective. So, uh, so in Seligman's research, he, he broke down what he found actually helped people develop that, that perspective. And he had the three P's, which is basically having, when you see positive things in your life as personal, permanent, and pervasive, and rather than seeing negative things as personal, permanent, and pervasive, that's what produces an optimistic outlook. And it makes sense. You know, if you are optimistic, if you think the future is going to go your way, then you're more likely to continue. And if you think the future is not going to go your way, then you're more likely to quit. So it seems like it would instill grit. Now, those three things is basically if something good happens, if you see it as personal, in other words, I was responsible for it. If you see it as pervasive, in other words, this is something that's going to to affect, like if you've got a solid personality trait, this is going to affect every area of my life. And you see it as permanent. In other words, it's something that's going to continue forward in the future. Then if you see good things that way, you're much more likely to be optimistic. Now, if you see if you see negative things in your life as personal, you know it's my fault. Uh, permanent, you know, it's like this is just something that's always going to be a problem for me, and pervasive. And this this is something negative that's going to affect every area of my life. Then you're going to end up with a then you're going to end up with a pessimistic attitude. So what people need to do is when they hear that voice in their head, that self talk, being personal, permanent, or pervasive, 
about you know negative things, basically to question that voice, to ask, is you know, is this really all my fault? Is this really going to be permanent, you know, and continue forever? And is this really pervasive? It's going to affect every area of my life. To challenge, you know, negative self-talk and help bring it around to positive self-talk. And you're saying to do that in the moment while uh, it's mean, happening? Uh, I, my, pre- my, my first thought I mean, is on the basketball yeah. court. <laughs> when I throw a pass that is like someone's open and I throw a bad bounce pass and it gets stolen, I sometimes get mad at myself like in real time. Um, but it's hard to do that, right? And modify your behavior like that. Well, I mean, in an immediate situation like that, yeah, you probably you probably don't have time. But after the fact, you can look back on the game, and you know, if you're if you're if you're walking to the locker room beating yourself up, you know, you can you can start to say, well, wait a second, I'm beating myself up. Why? Well, you know, oh, it's you're taking it personally. Well, weren't there other people who were responsible for this? Oh, this this is permanent. I'm always gonna no. If you practice, I can become better at basketball. This is pervasive. This is gonna affect you know my career outside of basketball. It's like, well, no, not necessarily because your jump shot doesn't affect you know your PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, I'm not. A, I'm not in the NBA. Is yeah, so shocker so to everyone to, listening. Exactly. So, to, <laughs> so you don't need to do. Obviously, you know, a, a thorough kind of questioning of your self-talk probably can't happen when when you're sprinting down the court. But it is something you can take time to do and and improve with over time. And then, the, so did the Navy SEALs reach their goal to to recruit new people and more? Absolutely, it did, it did increase passing rates uh, through buds when they taught new recruits. Uh, you know, a, f- a few things, including positive self-talk. Uh, do you talk to yourself? Uh, we all do. Yeah. Do you talk? Do you ever catch yourself being negative, or do you feel like you're more upbeat in that sense? I mean, I think we're all negative at at times. I think the I think the real issue is that a lot of us immediately identify with that voice that voice in our head, and and that's not always the the smart thing to do. You know, uh, you know, sometimes those thoughts are. You know, our, we are not always our thoughts. We all have crazy, goofy thoughts going through our head, and we we don't choose to identify with all of them. You know, you if you're if you're tired or drunk or hungry, or you're very quick to excuse your thoughts. I wasn't myself. That wasn't me. Or you know, we always have those. And so to take the time to create that gap, that distance, to look at the thoughts and and question them, because some of us just let that stream that stream of consciousness just go through our heads. And we kind of uncritically accept that whatever's going through my head is me. We need to take a step back and really question what's going on with those thoughts and, and correct them so that we can that we can have you know more useful ideas going through our head and not uncritically accepting you know every every idea that goes through our mind. So if you you can question it and accept that you've you've thought that, but then realize it's not the end all that that negative thought doesn't define you. It's no, like, like I said, we all have, we all have plenty of yeah. thoughts that go through our head that, you know, that we would, that you know, we don't, we don't necessarily think are the best. We don't necessarily identify with. And so when it comes to those negative, negative thoughts, we, we need to, you know, just not accept them uncritically, challenge them and, you know, and, and think about, it's kind of like, where do, where do we really stand? Or is that just something my brain is, is, bl- is blurting out as a, as an immediate reaction to something? Uh, that's great. Yeah, totally. I could see people getting caught up, especially if you're going through something traumatic like a divorce or something where you blame yourself. And that relates actually to my next question. I So your book is great. I highly recommend people listening to check it out. And um, I'll be putting the link in the description as well. It's available on Amazon. And um, you talk a lot about success and happiness and achievement and finding purpose in the work that you do. Um, is there anything when you were reading the book that you thought, or sorry, writing the book that was counterintuitive or surprised you or something that you thought was 
uh, more meaningful in your research that uh, was unexpected? Yeah, I mean, there were there were there were there were a number of things. I mean, that's I, I tried to I tried to focus on the counterintuitive. I think we've we've heard a lot of we've heard a lot of things uh, about success, and you know, it's, I mean, some of them some of them are pretty straightforward. But one of the things that was really interesting was uh, Harvard Business School professor Gotham Makunda talks about the idea of intensifiers. And that is qualities that are negative at the mean. In other words, they're, they're qualities that are considered negative on average, but in the right context can actually be a positive. So what I mean is uh, very often when we're talking about success, you know, we say, oh, you, you should be intelligent, uh, you should be charismatic. It's like, well, well, those are universally positive traits. You know, no, people don't usually refer to intelligence as a bad thing. Um, however, you know, you do have traits like stubbornness. And in your interpersonal relationships, you know, stubbornness is, you know, almost always a negative. You know, people don't talk about, you know, stubbornness helping a marriage. Um, but, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you know, what's stubbornness is persistence. You know, stubbornness is not giving in. So in the right context, like your career, stubbornness, persistence, grit can be a positive. Whereas in your interpersonal relationships, you know, stubbornness can be a really bad thing. So what he found was that among the most successful people – you not only have those positive traits, those universally good, easy traits, but they are also people who have taken the time to think about their intensifiers, their quote-unquote negative qualities, but in the right context, and that's the context that they choose to put themselves, those can end up being positives. You might be a very argumentative person. You know, being argumentative, again, your interpersonal relationships is not considered uh, a positive. However, if you specifically choose to be a litigator, uh, being argumentative can be a, a great personality <laughs> trait. So taking the time to know yourself, figuring out what those intensifiers are, and then aligning your knowledge of self with a context that rewards both your positives and your negatives, you know, that's a really uh, can really help you on the road to success. And so... A lot, of, a lot of times we don't know ourselves until maybe later in life because you, it's like, how do you recommend people self-actualize? Like, how would you go through a process of identifying your positives or negatives? There's, there's two ways I'd recommend. Um, uh, the late uh, Peter Drucker, who is one of the great management gurus of the 20th century, talked about, uh, talk about feedback analysis, where basically just sitting down and, you know, making predictions about, you know, how things are going to go, how things are going to work out. And over time, you know, you will see in what arenas, you know, you're able to kind of predict the future, predict success in what areas you're not as good by tracking, you know, here's what I expect to happen. Here's what actually happens. You know, here's where I think I'm strong. Well, here's where, where I really ended up strong. You know, that can be a valuable way to kind of see in what areas you thrive for specific personality traits to really better understand yourself. I believe it was Tasha Yurik is a researcher. And what she found is that we are actually terrible, you know, at that. We are actually terrible at figuring out, you know, what our strengths and weaknesses are. But, uh, observers are actually quite good at it. So the best thing to do is ask your friends. And if you want to uh, do that in the best way possible, uh, do it do it anonymously. Uh, in other words, if you if you can have if you can have if you can put together like a you know quick quick survey uh, for friends and have one of your friends send that to you know five or ten uh, five or ten friends and have that friend filter back. So you you get the answers, but you don't get the names. That way. People don't feel like you're going you're gonna to be upset with them, you're going to judge them, that it's going to be delivered anonymously. Now you're getting accurate feedback 
from your friends on you know what is your strengths, what is your weaknesses, and what you're going to see is sure there's going to be some one-off uh, you know uh, you know kind of uh, odd uh, things they mention, but I'll bet you that you know if you ask ten friends, you're going to see some trends. You're going to see six or seven people all mention that you're really good at X. Mm-hmm. You're also going to hear that six or seven people all said that you have a problem with why. And that's a good way, uh, backed by research, for you to get answers about where your strengths and weaknesses are. Even from yeah. friends. Because well, you you're think fr- about this yeah, professionally yeah. often, right? Where you do 365 feedback, right? If you're manager to the employee, employee to manager, peer to peer. Um, but your friends, you know, how, how is that helpful versus professionally? Uh, I mean, you you can do that with with coworkers if you know them well enough and they're willing to fill it out and they're willing to be honest. Um, you know, it can definitely uh, be helpful uh, in that way. Uh, but you know, the thing is, you might act a particular way in a particular role uh, versus friends who you know maybe have known you ten years, fifteen years. They could potentially see uh, traits that you have you know over a longer period of time through many jobs, through many roles, right? And and that you know, might be, uh, more useful. Okay. That's really interesting. I, um, I'm also fascinated by your, uh, like your ability. So you broke down, uh, is it success is the four pillars are happiness, achievement, significance, and legacy. Is that correct? Well, that, those in terms of work-life balance, work-life those balance. are the yeah. Those are the those when uh, when Nash and Stevenson at Harvard did research on people who had who had kind of you know rather than merely looking at a single metric like financial success, when they looked at people who had uh, you know a balanced life, those people had succeeded in four metrics, and those were happiness, achievement, significance, and legacy. Happiness is you know. Are you enjoying what you're doing? You know, achievement, that's where you get to, you know, money, promotions, you're moving forward. You know, third was significance, where is what you're doing beneficial to the ones you love? And, you know, and, and you know, is it really benefiting the, the people around you, uh, the people you love and the people who love you? And then legacy is, in some small way, is what you're doing making the world a better place? Is it having a, a positive effect you know, on, on, on the world. And when people, if you, the best way to do it is to look at your calendar uh, for a week, for a month and look and say, you know, is what I'm doing, not what I'm thinking, but like, you know, what I'm doing, am I making deposits in all four of those buckets, you know, over the course of a week or a month? And, and then tweaking that saying, you know, wow, I'm spending a lot of time on, on happiness, but, uh, I'm having trouble paying the rent. Well, then you need to work on achievement or I'm making a ton of money, but I'm not really enjoying what I'm doing. Okay. Well then you're doing good in achievement. You need to spend a little more time on happiness. So to be able to look at that through that lens and making sure that you're, you're finding some level of balance, which can differ from people from person to person, but you're finding some level of balance between those four metrics. Those are the people who who not only achieve financial success but also have a well-rounded life. That's fascinating. I'm actually like self-analyzing as I hear those um, because it's hard. I mean, you know, and I thought the significance one is really interesting because you're just saying like, does this matter to the people around me that I care about? And that's your loved ones, your significant others, your your friends. Is that is that what you mean? Like. Am I helping them, or is it? Am I providing them money, or what, what, what's the context around significance? Where where your your efforts, you know, are they making their their lives better? So so for instance, to look at you know the positive and negative in terms of four, um, you know, you could uh, really enjoy your job. 
and be doing well in happiness. You could be making a ton of money and be doing really well in achievement. You could be working for a company that provides a great service to the world, so you're achieving in legacy. But you might be a workaholic who works seven days a week, 16 hours a day, you never see your kids. Well, guess what? That's not providing a really beneficial environment for, for your children. So you're failing in the area of significance. So that's, that's great. Um, thanks for breaking that down. And as I hear you talk, you're one of my, the, you're the best type of podcast guest. <laughs> Thank you. Um, because you break things down into structured frameworks, which is easy for people to process while they're on the elliptical or they're driving to work or they're walking. And uh, moreover, you're a very good storyteller. And uh, how important are stories to us, specifically with looking at our past and having memories that affect us? Because if I'm a Navy SEAL in training at, at, at uh, BUDS, is that what it's called, BUDS? Yeah, the, yeah. I may think I can do this because I've trained for months and I've done it 50 times and I've gone into the ocean when it's been sub-zero. And like, how much uh, is story important to these, these uh, positives and negatives in our life? Uh, stories are really critical. Uh, stories are kind of the operating system of, of of the human brain. When you look at that's a great. Did you come up with that? That's great. I mean, I, I I think it's I think it's undoubtedly true that when you ask somebody, you know, most questions about, it, they're going to tell you a story, and and you see this consistently throughout stuff. John Gottman is the leading researcher on romantic relationships, and the best litmus test that he has for finding out whether a couple will will be divorced is merely asking them to tell their story. You know, do they tell a story that's positive? Do they tell a story that when they when they talk about challenges in their relationship, is this a story that is, you know, oh, we, we dealt with, we had a problem and then we overcame it and we learned something or we had this problem and yeah, you know, what are you going to do? And I mean, just listening to how people tell their story was incredibly predictive in his research of how they would how they would do. Uh, if you look at there was a, some, a study out of Emory University in terms of how how well children do, and one of the key things was do they know their family story? And what you also see is when you know the story that people tell themselves you know about their lives has, especially has uh, big effects on grit. You know the the story of who you are. You know is is really critical in terms of moving your forward. The beliefs you have about yourself, because we all we have a, a zillion things that have happened to us in our lives. If you ask somebody, okay, tell me your story. Obviously, they're they're not going to recount it in real time, and the story is going to take decades. They have to choose which elements they're going to pick and which which elements they're not. And we've all done good things. We've all done bad things. We've all succeeded. We've all failed. But which elements did they choose to tell you? And that really gives you a lot of insight into how they see themselves, how they see their lives. And that story is one that they're going to hold up uh, as they go forward. And it's 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 going to really end up providing a lot of the the motivation or lack of motivation that they have. That's, it's so interesting because I, uh, I have uh, inter- interviewed over 100 people and I asked that question at the very beginning to everyone is how, how do you describe yourself when you walk into a, you know, a situation, a restaurant, bar, coffee shop, and people ask what you're, what you're up to, what you do. And I find that so many people have that same story that they tell every single time. And I call it being authentically rehearsed (laughs) because it's authentic. It's these things really happen to you and it is who you are, but it's rehearsed because oftentimes you talk to people and you say what they gravitate to and you keep like, if you hit the right notes and the story, especially if you're doing sales or you're working in business and you're pitching people 
And how, how do you think stories affect the perception that we have of ourselves? And is there anything we can do to, like as an exercise or even recommendations to find better stories for ourselves? Um, I think it's I think it's really critical uh, to to look at that. You know, uh, there's a researcher uh, Jamie Pennebaker at the University of Texas at Austin, who has done uh, a lot of research on expressive writing, which is incredibly powerful. Uh, and it's the simplest thing in the world. Where if people sit down for four, uh, sit down for and write, you know, about an issue they're dealing with, you know, doesn't, doesn't matter necessarily what it is, but just writing 20 minutes, you don't have to correct your spelling. You never have to show it to anyone. You can, you can rip up the paper afterwards or delete the word file writing for 20 minutes about issues you're dealing with for four days straight. The benefits that this provides is enormous because what you see is that when we think about, you know, ourselves, our issues, our stories, who we are, the meaning in our lives, when we just think about it, that usually turns into what's called rumination, and rumination is, you know, basically, you know, worrying. And the 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 the, the results on that are almost universally negative. Rumination uh, is a is a good pathway to clinical depression. Uh, versus, I feel writing. like ruminating itself is just an, the connotations to that word. Anyone that is ruminating over something, you. I have concern for. <laughs> yeah, it's a, no, it's 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 generally used in a, in a negative, yeah, yeah, in a neg- in a negative way. And versus writing, we we often might think, oh, you know, that's just that's taking your thoughts and just putting them down. But that's not really how your brain sees it. You know, to write, you you need to structure your thoughts to some degree. You know, you need to really reflect, think about it, and then structure it. And what Pennebaker's found is that this has enormous benefits in terms of people coming to terms with issues, uh, finding new meaning in, in problems or challenges they've dealt with, and it provides a whole host of benefits, not only for, you know, people, people feel better about their lives, they overcome issues, they sleep better, improved health. Uh, it's amazing. And that's one of the ways where, as opposed to just ruminating, where you don't necessarily come to a resolution or find a benefit, by doing that expressive writing exercise, 20 minutes for four days, uh, people usually come out much better that, that we almost kind of tap into the, the subconscious, something that's not directly wow. accessible, yeah. uh, that, we, that by structuring the thoughts, writing them down, uh, we can actually help to kind of rewrite the story of our lives. It sounds like you have to be non-judgmental. You just need to write to write. Because a lot of times people don't want to put these things on paper, at least I speak from my own experience, because you don't want to have to look at it, <laughs> right? It's like, oh my God, that's something I'm not happy about or I'm frustrated about. And you, it's almost like you, there's accountability that comes with that. But you're saying, my interpretation is you just write for the sake of doing it, not necessarily um, to judge yourself. Is that right? I mean, it's, you know, it's just to get it out. Yeah. You, you don't, you don't, you don't have to do it. I mean, there are certain, certain things you can do that, that have been shown to make it, to make, to make the exercise more, uh, more, more successful, which is, you know, when, when people try and show cause and effect, uh, that, you know, more powerful when people, uh, draw a lot of ideas together, uh, you know, when people write in the most personal way, not, not looking at it, like I'm, I'm filling out, you know, an insurance form or, or writing it from the third person when they're very personal, when they talk about their feelings, um, these things have been shown to make it even, even more successful, uh, because they're, really getting to the heart of the matter. And, and like you said, 
you know, these are things that we may be uncomfortable with. These are things that maybe, you know, very, we might be insecure about, uh, but you can't improve it unless you, you really take a hard look at it. Um, that's great. I love that advice. And uh, I'm going to definitely uh, have a great blog post that comes from this conversation. You, you give a lot of good uh, take, t- takeaway value. So, uh, I, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's really, I mean, when I, when I listen to podcasts, you know, I, I love to get hard information, hard data, like stuff yeah. I can use, uh, you know, that's, that's really critical for me, both in the blog and the book. And so, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking, you know, I, I, I prefer to refer to something that, Hey, here's, here's something solid you can use. Absolutely. You know, it's super helpful because it's a fine balance between storytelling and hard data. So uh, I could tell you do a lot of public speaking. <laughs> and um, what about, uh, let's talk about money for one moment, because you mentioned the achievement part um, of your work-life balance, and money isn't always the biggest motivator. I was getting um, arguments with people that are like my father-in-law, <laughs> who's 60, 70 years old, and he always thinks money is the main reason people work. And um, what's your, what is your thought about like the the balance of money in, you know, the, not just the work-life balance, but in, in our culture, because there's so much more, like, are you a manager at the company or, you know, there's so many other variables that really do affect us in, in how we see ourselves within professional organizations. Uh, I, you know, I think what most of the research, you know, shows is that, you know, money is, Money is, you know, necessary but not sufficient. Uh, you know, when it when it comes there as a as a motivator. I think it was Dan Pink who said that, you know, you need to pay people enough. You need to pay people enough to take the issue of money off the table. You know, I mean that money needs to, you know, without with when we lack it, you know, we're going to be unhappy. But the marginal, you know, utility of of money diminishes. The you know more money is not necessarily going to going to solve all your problems. You know, you can you can still you can make plenty of money and still be bored to death. You can make plenty of money and still feel like you know you're you're not having a positive effect on the world, or you know, or you're or you're doing the same thing every day. You know, so what you see is that you know we need to make enough, obviously, to pay the bills. And then what most of the research shows is that certainly more money is is a positive. You know, but that doesn't necessarily mean that basically every hour, what could I be doing with that hour? And is that you know what's going to deliver me the most kind of fulfillment, happiness, and meaning in my life? You know, there's a point where working another hour might make you X dollars. But if that hour was spent with friends and family enjoying yourself, that would actually b- contribute much, much more to your overall happiness and fulfillment. That line where, yeah, if I'm only working 10 hours a week and I'm not paying enough, I'm not making enough money to pay the bills, that's going to dramatically negatively affect your happiness. However, if you're working 50 hours a week, taking that up to 55, those five hours are not going to translate into enough happiness from money as opposed to five hours of happiness with your friends and family. So, you know, you need to make enough money to pay the bills, to, to get by, to do, to do those things, to feel secure. But beyond that, you know, money is not the best, you know, motivator. People need to feel, you know, some level of, of meaning, some level of accomplishment. And again, you know, what you see, this is research by Sonia Lubomirsky, is that happiness is much more likely to lead to success than success is actually to lead to happiness. That's I, I love that. That's it's, it sums it up really well. And I think my experience, I've done a lot of uh, work in media and technology startups, and I would take less money than my market value, but I'd get equity in the company. 
and I felt like an owner. And so when I had to work on the weekends at, you know, 10 at night, I would actually say, well, this is going to affect my long term because the comp- this company Machinima I work for got acquired by Warner Brothers. And it's like, well, my next on the line here, I have a lot more skin in the game because I took less salary. But I always found like the psychology of the startup environment for me has worked well because you work towards the future. You're in a team and everyone's an owner and that you can't get that out of a traditional corporation where you're just the employee. No, I mean, you know, if, 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 if money was everything, then, you know, why would anyone work in the nonprofit space, which is well known for not paying, not paying people as much, you know, as, as, uh, you know, a public corporation might, why would, why would anybody risk their lives, uh, in, you know, work being in the military or law enforcement if money was everything? Um, you know, that, that wouldn't make, you know, any sense. Why, why would anyone start a blog or a podcast? <laughs> why, no, why, yeah. Why, 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 why would Using anyone, ourselves as examples. Exactly. And why would anyone stay home to raise their kids? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's obviously put your kids in daycare and, you know, put your kids, get a great job that pays you plenty of money so you can afford to put your kids in daycare and have a, a Lexus. I mean, yes. wouldn't, wouldn't that be the, the smarter thing to do? Why, why does anyone, I mean, obviously you know, money is not the, the only thing. And, you know, certainly not the only reason why, why people do what they do. And, you know, I mean, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of, you know, money is a very easy and it's easy to count. So that, that is uh, something that uh, when I spoke to Michael Norton at Harvard business school, you know, he said, that's kind of the trap that many people fall into is, you know, we're always looking to see, uh, to measure, you know, am I doing well? Am I doing well in my life? And the problem is that that you, we often lack an effective metric for that. Money is very easy to count. Am I making more than I was last year? Okay, then I'm doing better. But how do you? What's the metric on? Am I a good father? Am I a good husband? Am I a good friend? There's there's no number that that's easy to to do for that. So what happens is people often gravitate towards the money number because it's easy to see if it's going up or down. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's the single most important thing in your life. You know, you want to have, uh, you know, the, uh, you want to be successful, you know, as a friend, father, uh, you know, mother, you know, so you, you need to find a way to, to evaluate those because those things are all important to us. And, you know, money is not this, this thing that's going to solve all those problems. And so speaking of actually money in the context of, you know, who, you know, and how you get jobs and work and networking, you, you go in depth around, um, the adage of it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. And I like that, um, that you've jumped into it because, um, you've, you, I believe you mentioned that it's often the context of who knows you. Is that right? That that's one of the, one of the key things is, you know, in terms of, you know, when, I mean, that, that's one of the angles I do approach it from is when you talk about, you know, famous people, extremely successful people, um, you know, I, they, they they don't they don't need to know me, but I need to know who they are. That's when you're you're fa- you know to use your Jay Z example. I know who Jay Z is. I really doubt Jay Z knows who I am. You know, but but he is very successful. Uh, you're saying uh, he's, not, he's not on your email list? Is that what you're saying? Uh, no, I think he changed it. He, I haven't up, I haven't updated my address book in a while. But, um, so you know that's the kind of that's the kind of thing in terms of you know fame and major success like that is you know everybody knows you know who who Obama is. Uh, whether Obama knows who I am is a, is a very different question. And so, in the context of is it really is it is it is it the balance of the two? It's what you know and who you know, and it's just different for different people. 
Uh, what what's really critical there is uh, I, I I break down the research on introverts versus extroverts, and you know both of them have kind of their individual superpower. Where you know extroverts are very good at meeting people, building networks, and there's enormous value that that comes from that. You look across the board. There's even there's even research. I I, I love to go to extremes, and I love to have uh, fun examples. There's even research showing that with drug dealers, uh, a bigger network is valuable to drug dealers. They they make more money and are less likely to be incarcerated if they have a bigger network. Uh, you know, but on the flip side, so if, and you know, extroverts are, you know, more likely to find jobs, more likely to, to get promoted in those jobs. And so, you know, you've got to say, well then, geez, you know, what's the, what's the benefit of being an introvert? And the, often the benefit with introverts is introverts are far more likely to become experts in their field because since they don't spend those hours socializing, they have those hours to, for skill development, to get much better at what they do. So when you look at the research, uh, introverts on average get far better grades. They're much more likely to get PhDs. You know, they're, uh, even when you look at top athletes, uh, in the Olympics and, and stuff like that, even if it's a team sport, you know, to spend those hours to, you know, in the batting cage, yeah. shooting free throws, they, you know, uh, m- the majority of professional athletes identify as introverts because they have to spend that time alone on skill development. They can't be out at the party. You know, they need to spend the long hours becoming great at what they do. So we need to, f- to maximize success, you need to look at the role you're in. You know, I mean, if, if the role you're in is, uh, you know, uh, sales or, or something that involves dealing with all like business development, dealing with a lot of people, then yeah, it's like probably spend more time, you know, with the extroverted elements of your personality, fewer with the introvert. And if you're a computer programmer, hey, you're going to spend a lot of time alone, you know, writing code, uh, becoming an expert, you know, at your skill versus spending the time networking, that would be a better breakdown of it. But usually these traits are pretty stable over people's, over a period of time. So how it usually works is that you should look at, again, what are your traits, what are your strengths, and then a Align the career you choose, the environment you choose, with you know whether you're introverted, whether you're extroverted, and of course there is a third option, which is the majority of people are not extreme introverts or extreme extroverts. The majority of people are ambiverts, and that is people who are somewhere in the middle. And ambiverts, you know, uh, they they have their they have their strengths as well. When you look at the research, what you see is that ambiverts actually are the best salespeople because extroverts usually push. They can be too pushy, uh, you know, too too aggressive. And introverts, while they're usually very good listeners, uh, introverts are not as focused on the close, uh, closing the deal. So ambiverts are actually the people who ends up being the best the best salespeople, and they have a balance between the two. And if you're an ambivert, you need to think about when do I need to bring out my more extroverted side? When do I need to bring out my more introverted side? Uh, yeah, this is a playbook. You sh- you, uh, this needs to be required reading for anyone in high school, I believe. <laughs> I mean, this is so, because none of us really plot out methodically our careers, especially, and think about like, oh, this is my personality type. Like you take the Myers-Briggs, you know, maybe in college, and then you're like, oh, great, I'm an ENFP. But overall, like, I feel like very few people in my circles, they don't, they don't learn who they are until they're professionally in their 30s at the very least. Um, No, I mean, most people don't, you know, most people find these things out through trial and error, you know, as opposed to being very deliberate about it. And, and that can be problematic because, you know, while you gain experiences, you, you, you know, which can lead to information, uh, being more deliberate about it, you know, you can, you can learn a lot more, a lot more quickly and then make better choices early on. 
And so do you believe in the 10,000 hour principle? Because you, you talk about that as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the research by Kanders Kand- Erickson. And, and that Malcolm, you know, overall, that Malcolm Gladwell I mean, made famous, right? Yeah, that he, pop- he popularized uh, in Outliers. And, uh, you know, that's that's not a hard and fast, you know, magic number. Uh, but, you know, that's a the threshold. Theory, sorry to interrupt because if people don't, I, I didn't set this up well enough, but people, you work 10,000 hours, that's the perceived, or the, the data shows that that's when you become an expert in your field. Is that right? Yeah, usually that it takes 10,000 hours, uh, 10,000 hours, and the, 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 the critical distinction is 10,000 hours of what is called deliberate practice. You know, I have probably driven a car for 10,000 hours. That does not qualify me for NASCAR. <laughs> right. um, you know, I may have spent, over the course of my life, I may have spent 10,000 hours shampooing my hair. That does not make me an expert in shampooing my hair. Uh, so I've seen your avatar. I mean, it's pretty good. It's good hair. Uh, well, I mean, I'm working on it. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, you know, so the issue is, you know, deliberate practice where, you know, if, if you are, you know, out there hitting golf balls, uh, you know, thinking about the weaknesses in your shot and spending time trying to correct those, that's deliberate practice where you are actually, you know, you're thinking about your, your, your weaknesses, trying to bring them up, getting feedback and correcting based on that feedback. You know, that's deliberate practice when you're actually trying to improve your skills. So, uh, so yeah, the research shows that, you know, 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, that's an approximate number. So for some, some things require more, some things require less, uh, you know, but that, that is sort of that threshold approximately for, uh, for becoming an expert. Uh, and, you know, I, and I don't think anybody disputes, uh, you know, more, more, more time deliberately trying to improve your skills, ceteris paribus, will, will make you uh, better at what you do. Uh, the, the number might vary somewhat depending upon the person, depending upon your natural uh, ability. I can probably spend 10,000 hours um, basketball. I don't think that'll qualify qualify for me for the NBA. I'm I'm not six foot eight, uh, so you know. So it varies certainly, uh, but that's kind of a, a good you know a good uh, back of the envelope number uh, in terms of becoming what would be considered an expert in your field. So you agree with that then? Because a lot of your book is poking holes in some of these larger theories. Well, I mean, I, again, I, I put a lot of caveats on that, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you know, I, 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 again, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not six, five, two sixty five. I don't think I'm going to be in the NFL. Um, you know, and, and again, uh, for, for some things, 10,000 hours isn't enough for, for some things, you know, 10, 10,000 hours is, is even more than you need. Uh, so, you know, back of the envelope, uh, yes, I think we, I think we, we can agree that, you know, a uh, hundred hours is not going to make you, not going to put you in the top 2% of, uh, of many fields. Uh, and, you know, and, uh, and once you start to get into that arena, you know, of 10,000 hours, then you're probably going to be uh, pretty darn good at what you do. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, and you, did you get your 10,000 hours in or something around there when you blogged and then your book came later? Uh, I mean, I, 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 hopefully I have, I have 10,000 hours, uh, in terms of writing because actually before I even started the blog, um, initially out of college, I was a, I was a screenwriter in Hollywood. So I spent 10 years, uh, in Hollywood, 
uh, writing uh, screenplays. And then, you know, I spent, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of hours writing the blog. And then I spent the past, uh, you know, two, two and a half years uh, working on the book. Uh, so hopefully in there, I'm, I'm, I'm in that arena. But, uh, but, but in, in the end, if I'm, if I'm an expert or not, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that up to who's, whoever's reading my material. Yeah, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep that as an open-ended question. Okay, um, okay. I don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> okay. Where you have to talk about your own expertise. But do you, uh, do you, so when you transitioned, were you screenwriting when you started blogging or did you do a, um, a hard out of screenwriting and then went right to blogging and pursuing new career endeavors? Uh, there was there was a there was a gap there. Uh, I didn't I didn't transition uh, transition straight between the two, uh, but it was interesting to see how some of the lessons that I had learned in in screenwriting did carry over, uh, you know, and others others didn't. There are some. It's I guess I would analogize it to shifting between sports, you know, where you know if if you if you had been if you had been a sprinter. Uh, then, you know, and then you go to be a, be a running back, uh, in, in football, you know, you're, you're going to be, you're probably going to be very good at running, uh, but you, you probably have zero experience, uh, you know, catching a ball, uh, or working with teammates. So there are some skills that might even, that are going to be strong, maybe even overdeveloped, uh, and there are other skills that you're, you're going to have to build. Uh, and I think that's true whenever you change mediums, you know, like, like I said, going from screenwriting to blogging to, to writing a book, you know, there's similarities and there's differences, uh, between writing mediums. And did you, uh, have a chance, like, is there anything I've seen or that we've watched that you wrote that's been on TV Prob- or movies? Pro- probably not. No, probably not. Uh, pro- probably not. Um, that's fascinating because I used to do stand-up comedy and I worked in LA as a production assistant and, uh, on the wire, I actually thought about that when you were talking about drug dealers, um, having good networks <laughs> and being oh. extroverted. Um, so then when you, you know, pivoted your career now, like in your, you know, to keep this hyphenate going, this analogy of you're, you're figuring out, like you do, you have a whole skill set now that, you know, for 10 years out of college, wasn't in your tool bag as it is at the moment. So did you ever envision this as your career? Because you talked to so many brilliant like professors from business schools and researchers, and you really went under the hood of behavior and science. And, and I don't want to talk anymore because it's just, it's fascinating. Like how did you, did you ever envision this? Uh, no. I mean, there was, frankly, there was no way I, I really could have. I mean, uh, you know, when I was in, when I was in college, I mean, I, I, you know, the, the internet was really starting to, to ramp up, you know, I, I didn't even have an email address until, until my final year of college. Uh, so, you know, I, I blo- blo- blogger wasn't, blogger wasn't a career, uh, it didn't even really exist. And, uh, and I didn't even, uh, I didn't even know about social science, uh, until, you know, I was getting my MBA. So, you know, all, uh, for me there, there wasn't a clear plan. Uh, you know, I, I kind of just followed my interests and, and that, and that, bounced me around between, you know, a, a bunch of different things. It's one of the, it's one of the reasons I, I wrote the book. And one of the reasons the book, the subject matter of the book was interesting to me was because I didn't have a very traditional conventional career. And I found that a lot of the maxims of success that were 
you know, taught to me when I was a kid just didn't seem to apply to, to my life and how I had lived it. Uh, so, so I really wanted to get to the bottom of, you know, are these true or, or are these true in a limited sphere? Uh, are these true for only certain types of people? So that was really, it was a personal journey, you know, uh, for me, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm referencing the research of others. I'm interviewing, um, you know, people who have done great. I'm, this is not like my personal tale. You know, I'm trying to rely on, on the expertise of others who have spent a lot of time in the trenches. Because I was very curious to get these answers myself. Yeah. Well, the book is great. And uh, as is your blog, you have 300,000 people on the list who uh, subscribe and read what you write regularly. And I, I, I'm going to link to it all in the uh, description. So where can people find you online? Uh, my, my blog has a really odd URL. So the best thing to do is probably to, uh, just Google, uh, barking up the wrong tree blog or Eric Barker blog. And, you know, the, the book is also called barking up the wrong tree available on, you know, Amazon and, and wherever else. Uh, and the best way to keep up with the latest, uh, the latest stuff I'm, uh, research I'm looking at and, uh, ideas I'm writing about is to sign up for the, the email list. It's one email a week. And, uh, yeah, so Googling barking up the wrong tree is probably the best way to find me. That's great. It's good, good name brand recognition. Um, <laughs> and you do a really wonderful job of like articulating a lot of academic work that maybe all, not all of us would ever read and translating. I look at you like you're a translator of sorts. So um, book is very easy read. And uh, thank you so much, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it was great talking to you, man. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks again to Eric Barker coming on the show. Make sure you check out his book on Amazon, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. I love his counterintuitive uh, takes on science and helping us become more efficient, living better lives, and thriving with our work-life balance. And I also want to remind you to check out the website, influencereconomy.com, for my interviews with best-selling authors, entrepreneurs, and business leaders who are changing the world through their stories every day of their lives. Finally, uh, if you like this podcast, please leave an iTunes review. It's super helpful to get this discovered more, featured in iTunes, and get new audience reach and members. So uh, thanks for all the support. Talk to you all later, and check out Eric Barker's Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Mm -hmm.